welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book six of The Dark Tower, Song of Susanna, stanzas eight through ten. Let's start the show. Following the ambush, Roland and Eddie have some downtime with John Cullum, where they discuss pain drugs, baseball, the location of Calvin Tower, and an author named Stephen King. Eddie and Roland confront Tower, and it's all Eddie can do not to kill him. Eventually, they're able to get him to sign over the vacant lot with the Rose. Meanwhile, Susanna and Mia have another palaver where Susanna learns more of the truth about Mia and the chap she is carrying. Still no Jake or Father Callahan, though. And where's Oi? Yeah, where is Oi? I miss Oi. Yeah, we're like two-thirds of the way through the book. I need more Oi. So, Jay, I was thinking as we approached this section about how in movies, a lot of times when a movie sets up themes early on in the movie, they start to go towards the wayside as the plot starts to drive the narrative Mm -hmm. towards the end of the the story. And we're not quite at that point where we have just plot straight through, but I've, in the last book and this book, we can get the sense that we're moving away with some, away from more of the thematic elements of the book towards more of a plot piece. Because you and I have had a little bit more problem drawing out the thematic pieces of this story. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, this book has been more and more plot heavy. And it's also just a lot of exposition, like so much exposition in this book. Yeah, so we're not to the point where we're just driving the plot straight through of where what's going to happen next, because there's still a lot of slow pieces with lots and lots of exposition. And Stanzas 8, 9, and 10 that we're covering today are just full of that exposition. So let's talk a little bit about that, Jay. What is going on and how is this impacting the book? I don't know that it's impacting the book, but I think it's impacting the overall structure of the Dark Tower story as we've come to know it. Mm. Like it, it's gotten to the point where I wonder if Mia in some forgotten language translates to exposition <laughs> instead of mother, because every time Mia shows up for more than a paragraph or, or more than just to push Susanna's consciousness to the background, it's to basically just give us another info dump. And I kind of feel like it's, it's not too little too late. I think it's too much too late. Mm. Like. There was a a chance that King had in this eight book series to really establish the world, to really build up that background, that underlying structure and the mythos and everything that goes with it to make the rest of the story and the plot that fits within it make more sense and be more meaningful. But he's waited until the penultimate book, the penultimate entry into this series to to give us all of this exposition. And I feel like it's it's all in service of how he has chosen to end the story. I think he realized, I need to figure out how to end the story. 
but that ending might not make enough sense unless I give you a whole bunch of extra info. Mm. And it just feels like it's too much of that extra info so late in the story. It feels off balance. Uh, if I compare this to Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles for a moment, the first book in that was Interview with a Vampire. And it was purposely written in such a way and constructed in such a way that the main character, like us, the audience, didn't really understand what it meant to be a vampire. It was our, we joined him on his journey to become a vampire and try his best to find out and figure out what being a vampire in this world that Anne Rice created really meant. Where do the powers come from? Who was the first? All that stuff. Are there others? Etc. And then Anne Rice decided, okay, I'm going to make a sequel. And that's where I'm going to tell you everything. <laughs> I'm going to just spell it all out for you. Like, I'm going to give you just about every bit of info in book two. And it's that whole book is almost all exposition. And then the rest of the series just sort of builds on that brick by brick in a pretty organic way, or at least it feels like a natural, a natural expansion. Sure, she adds new stuff and new characters, but the underlying mythos, the underlying world that she built is largely created and confined to that amount of, of information. If King had done something similar, we would have gotten a whole heck of a lot more stuff, all the things that Mia tells us in like book two or maybe book three. And King did a lot of world building in book three. We talked about that. We learned about Shardik and the the Positronics company and, and North Central Positronics. And we find out about the beams and how they hold up the tower and how they crisscross and the guardians. And that's awesome stuff. But this feels like you also need to know a whole extra book's worth of information for the rest of the story to make sense. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like it's, it's not lazy and it's not, I don't know. It's not messy, but I just, I just kind of think it's regrettable. I, I feel like King could have done a better job of backfilling this information along the way, rather than all at the end. Yeah, I think I think you've hit it on the head exactly what the issue is, and the issue isn't that it's not interesting. It's that he needs to give it to us all now for it to make sense at the end, assuming that it's all going to make sense at the end. Yeah, but for him to get where he needs to go, he needs to give you all this material. And part of the challenge of writing a book series over 30 years is that things have changed along the way. And it probably wasn't until he got to this point that he knew how it was all going to fit together and had that opportunity to do so, mm -hmm. where it all came together. And if it was just books five, six, and seven, we might think like, okay, book five is this, book six is the information, and book seven is going to be the, the, the finale. But since we had those other four books ahead of it, we didn't get necessarily that that building structure that you're talking about because we exactly. had all this other stuff first that didn't get there. I'm happy to learn all this information that Mia is giving us. It feels vital and important, but I just wish that it felt more connected to the previous books. This Castle Discordia and somehow Roland knows how many beams are left and you know things like this. and. Now we've got like the senior members of the the Crimson King army now have 
the eyes carved into their you know endlessly bleeding foreheads and that's all awesome i love the imagery i love the idea of this that the the crimson king's servants bear his mark for all to see and i like that it's this some sort of you know wound it it's like a brand that never heals but i feel like that should have been around longer we've encountered these vassals of the crimson king before and they didn't have those marks until very recently in the story including walter yes when callahan met walter at the way station he had the mark he had the the bleeding eye on his forehead yep mia says when she met walter he didn't have it and when roland saw walter every time he saw walter at any point in the story he didn't have it so is it something that can be glamored away when necessary or is it just a matter of king hadn't thought of it yet and here it is now and it, maybe it's important for some reason yeah for me it was even just sort of interesting i was much more invested in what will be our next topic but i will say that especially after having a long mia and susanna conversation just a few chapters earlier to have another one that was just as long and contradicted some of the things that we heard and really added a lot of exposition. I was really turning those pages, trying to get back to, hey, let's get to some action, or at least let's get to something that does interest me. And unless you have more to say about this expositionary stuff, we're going to get to what interests me, which is, hey, Jay, Stephen King is real in these books. Yeah. And seems to be very important to Eddie um, in a way that maybe seems like a leap for Eddie. He all of a sudden, in the discussions with John Cullum, latches onto this idea that Stephen King is somebody important and somebody that they, he and Roland, need to meet because he has some key connection between Roland's world and the world they're in now and potentially this whole adventure that they're on. Um, yeah, the, this is presented to us as though it's an instinct on Eddie's part, that there's just something in the back of his mind insisting, do this, find King, talk to King. You need to meet this man and confront him, question him, learn from him, something, right? But this is kind of similar to Eddie's final, uh, let's say, half hour on Blaine when he kind of receded into himself and he knew there was something he could do that he could outsmart the train. He could outsmart this, what are the, those computers called? The slow trans something or other? I don't know. Yeah. Like, it, it, Eddie just, he knew there was something and it kept slipping out of his mental grasp. And eventually he did come through and he did come up with the, the dead baby joke and save the day, right? I kind of feel like this might be something like that. Like Eddie's like on the cusp of a true epiphany. Yep. But he doesn't understand that yet. Or maybe he doesn't quite understand why this he's got this itch in the back of his brain. But it feels right. And he's learned to trust that instinct in himself. And, and Roland trusts Eddie's instincts as well. So it makes sense. But the fact that Stephen King's a real person does seem important. I mean, how many other authors would have the audacity to write themselves into their story, especially a story as epic as this? Right. And so Eddie specifically says, 
he asks John Cullum, you've heard of Stephen King? And he basically says, yeah. And this is Eddie's point of view. He was having that through the looking glass down the rabbit hole off of a comet feeling again. Note the Alice in Wonderland imagery there. Mm -hmm. And tried to ascribe it to the pain pills he's taken. It wouldn't work. All at once, he felt strangely unreal to himself. A shade you could almost see through, as thin as, well, as thin as a page in a book. And that feeling was totally subjective, wasn't it? When you came right down to it, how did anyone know they weren't a character in some writer's story, or transient thought in some bus-riding schmo's head, or a momentary mode in God's eye? Thinking about such stuff was crazy, and enough such thinking could drive you crazy, and yet, um, Eddie thought, King's a key, isn't he? Kala, Callahan, Crimson King, Stephen King. Is Stephen King the Crimson King of this world? And that's something that, Jay, that when you and I do our planning for these uh, episodes, I think it was way back in book five, I mentioned something like Crimson King and Stephen King. Maybe Stephen King is the Crimson King. And we sort of laughed it off because I was like, no, there's no way that that could be that obvious. And yet Eddie, <laughs> had, Eddie had the exact same thought that I did. Um, so it, 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 it is very interesting i don't know what's going to come of it we i have not read ahead of anywhere we're at um but as you said roland trust eddie's instincts at this point there's been too many times that eddie has done the right thing whether it's carving the key that they knew was going to happen whether it was coming up with the dead baby joke at the right time that roland is willing to potentially go off script and go waste not waste time but go and use their precious time to look into who the Stephen King character is. As you said, though, it does seem as if Eddie has made a leap that we're not sure what's causing that leap. Well, I suppose if we put ourselves in Eddie's shoes for a moment, Eddie's aware of Callahan being a fictional character in a book by Stephen King. Yep. And yet he has met Father Callahan and knows him to be a real person as far as he's concerned. So I think that's the that's the junction point, right? That's where the circuit is starting to close in Eddie's mind. Like, if Callahan is an invention of this guy, and I can drive across town and talk to that guy, what happens? Yep. Right? I think anybody in that exact scenario, as fantastical and impossible as that could be, if you actually were in Eddie's shoes, I don't know that anything could keep you from satisfying that curiosity. I I don't think it would for me. You know, like, oh, the world's about to end. Yeah, but I can meet somebody who supposedly wrote a book that I'm an uh, a fictional character in. Like, maybe I could convince him to give me superpowers or something. You know, like I don't know. I've seen enough science fiction where if you meet your creator or your double, bad things happen. Yeah, like when C three PO met Darth Vader. <laughs> Oh, so Eddie's not the only one who's heard about King in this section either. Susanna has a number of odd sort of flashes of different pieces. So she hears John Kennedy being killed. She hears Robert Kennedy being killed. And then she hears that Stephen King has been hit by a van and killed. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of all sort of flashes in her head and news pieces. And so Eddie's not the only one who's starting to hear this. Uh, Susanna doesn't make any connection that that's Stephen King. It's just sort of the background noise in her life, but it, but it's coming up again. We don't even know that Susanna is aware that Stephen King exists, that right. there is a person even with that name, right? Because she hasn't seen the 
the book on the bookshelf. The only book she's seen is the Charlie the Choo Choo that yeah that that Jake has brought through. But that yeah, you're right that she doesn't know anything else. Um, you know, and the 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 Kennedy piece is interesting because she hears Walter Cronkite's voice say, "America's last gunslinger is dead." Oh, Discordia. Yeah, which is an echo from something that when we first met Odetta is something that she she reflects back on when she's first getting to know Roland, yep. that John F. Kennedy was referred to as the last gunslinger. So in addition to the, the sort of stunning connection that Eddie has made about King, which is a leap of faith almost, uh, there's this interesting passage when Eddie and Roland are driving to meet Calvin Tower. Yeah, in, in their secret, secret hideout. Yes, that everyone knows about. Uh, John Collins like, oh yeah, I know those guys. I've heard of them. I know, <laughs> I know exactly where they are. So that that gets Eddie really upset. Um, but as they're walking down Jafford's Rentals is the name of the the community they're at. Eddie thought of pointing out to Roland that they had known a Jafford's in the Kala, known him very well, and they didn't. It would have been belaboring the obvious. So Eddie has made the decision not to belabor the obvious and say, "Hey, look, there's Jafford's, and we're Jafford's." And then the very next chap, the very next paragraph is they passed 15, 16, and 17. Colin paused briefly to consider at 18, but then they went on because Eddie knew that they weren't stopping at 18. They were going to 19. And so when we get Eddie saying he doesn't want to belabor the obvious, King has no qualms about doing that. He likes yeah. to, he will belabor the obvious to no end here. The fact that he put all of those thoughts in <laughs> Eddie's mind to say like, uh, and never mind, I'm not going to belabor the obvious, is belaboring the obvious already. <laughs> yes. And then he goes on to tell us all the other stuff. And just, yeah. And yeah, like the rental address is number 19 on the road. And then, you know, the then when Eddie's getting his very much cliched emergency bullet removal surgery by his <laughs> buddy with a dirty pair of pliers and a, a couple of, you know... Uh, non-sterile rags here bite this belt kind of thing that's when eddie remembers oh yeah that's right the magnificent seven how many of us were in that fight in colibrin sturges seven oh yeah oh and the guy who directed that movie his last name was sturgis weird huh but i don't want to belabor the obvious no not at all <laughs> well Stephen King is real, and he's put himself into a book, and he's sort of making fun of himself in the book, or maybe not. Maybe he's just not as self-aware as we'd like to think. Yeah. As I've mentioned in uh, many episodes, I read books five, six, and seven very quickly, one time, as soon as they were published. So that's a long time ago at this point. So the details of these books are vague and fuzzy enough for me that I'm largely experiencing these as though this is my first time through and I'm enjoying it and I'm I'm having fun making my way through these books and I'm really enjoying parsing my way through them with you so I remember being a little bit miffed maybe a lot miffed that Stephen King wrote himself into this book but I wonder if going through it a second time really thinking about it really paying attention to the details the way that you and I will if it might turn out to make more sense than we're, we might be giving him credit for, I, I say this without any clear remembrance of the details. It's, it's not spoiler material. Uh, I just, um, 
I guess I'm saying I'm holding out hope that I will maybe be more positive about what we read as we get further through this book and the next. I'm interested in seeing what happens. I'm a big fan of metafiction and I've read enough books. One of my favorite um, series of books is the New York Trilogy by Paul Auster, which very much plays around with the fact that Paul Auster is a writer of metafictional detective novels in which there is a novelist named Paul Auster in the book and things that happen oh. in his life happen in his book. And I love the, the that type of book. There's a lot that you can do there. When it's done well, when it's done poorly, it can fall very flat. Um, I have enough confidence in King as a good yeah. writer that I think that this will probably work out. Um, you and know, that, that's that's one, what I'm I'm getting at. I, I think that as much as I've been a fan of King's for forever, and I've read the large majority of his books at least once, I think that I I was maybe a little bit too harsh in my initial judgment of these. I I, I have regained not just my confidence in him, but I think a heightened appreciation for his skills as an author. So I think it might seem weird now, but I bet he's getting to something good. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of what we've been talking about is how a lot of these books have been dealing with the fact that there are stories being told within these books and that there seems to be a very clear idea in these books that stories and books mean something. And that mm -hmm. these characters are interested in books and sort of how do books work and how do they impact lives. And there's been enough setup of that that it's not coming out of the blue, I don't think. Yeah. Now, having said all that, let's talk about how this section has a few problems that we might want to deal with. Um, the first one that we alluded to earlier is where are Jake, Oi, and Callahan? I mean, the way that the first couple stanzas of this book set this up, it seemed clear that there were going to be two major missions for the men of the Cotet. Right. That two of them were going to have to go and rescue Calvin Tower and deal with that. And two of them were going to have to go and deal with Mia. And mm -hmm. we have gotten a lot of one of those stories and not a lot of the other. And Jake and Oi and Callahan have gone through the door and we haven't seen them since. Yeah, we've gotten nothing yeah. of their storyline. And I don't know why that would be like even just to check in even like one one page you know like just say like so we know where they are or where they're standing or what their current status is as far as we know like time has not progressed for their story yeah they went through the door apparently oi went through with them and like smacked somebody in the side of the head or something as he passed by and got sucked into the door and that's um that's all we know Yep. And like, it just seems really weird. Like we are so far along in this book. Like, I feel like we're far closer to the end than we are to the beginning and not one single page on two really important characters and Father Callahan. Oh, I see. I see what you did there. You put Oi ahead of Father Callahan. Good job, Jay. I, I will always put Oi ahead of <laughs> just about all the characters. Always the best. Now, again, this might be something that you and I are noticing more because we are parsing this book into sections. You know, if we sat down and read this book straight through in one sitting, we might not have noticed that, hey, it took us a long time to get to Jake and Oi. Um, much like if you binge watch a show, you might not have noticed that, hey, that character wasn't in that episode at all. But mm -hmm. if you've watched three in a row and they were in episodes one and three, but not two. So... 
but we'll see. I'm hoping that we get to them soon. I mean, I think we only have one big section of the novel left, so I would imagine yeah. they're going to show up unless they don't appear again until in, until book uh, seven. So we'll see. This is starting to feel a little bit George R. R. Martin-ish. <laughs> oh! <laughs> so we also have a introduction of a newish character, a totally new character at the end of this section, a Reverend Harrigan, mm. who just sort of appears as Mia and Susanna are moving through the city. Um, we get this street preacher who's being accosted by a policeman. Um, and there's something going on here, but I have to admit that I'm not picking up exactly what King's putting down. He he seems to be possibly be related to the Manny. He sticks out to Susanna, but I just don't know who Reverend Har Harrigan is and why he's important at this point. And maybe all will be revealed at the beginning of next chapter. But as of right now, I'm a little not sure yeah, who he is. I, I I think that it's quite intentional that we don't know enough about him yet, but it is kind of strange to introduce apparently a brand new character. So the other problem that I wanted to bring up was the racist portrayal of Japanese tourists in the hotel where Mia slash Susanna is hiding. I was not a fan of this. Um, no, it was a, a little hard to read. Yeah. I mean, giving King some benefit of the doubt, like, I know this is supposed to be Mia's perspective and she is uninformed of culture and maybe has no reference point for other languages and ethnicities in New York of 1999. But I, I kind of feel icky about how King put sort of Japanese accents in the mouths of these characters when they try to communicate with the other characters, including Mia, in English. And I don't know, it just, I don't even think this is a, 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 like a circumstance of like, well, this book was written in another time. You know, sensitivities have changed. Like, this book was written in... Yeah, not that long. In 2003, 2004, like, yeah. Yeah, this made me think of, you know, Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And yeah, that or... was another time, but still, that's bad. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's such a played out trope anyways of the Japanese tourists with their cameras always taking pictures of everything they see, like... That's tiresome as well, um, mm -hmm. let alone adding the accents on it. And yeah, it was the accent for me that yeah. was like a step too far. Well, yeah, I think agreed. If, if King had just had them a bus, a bus full of Asian tourists with cameras, like yeah, kind of a cliche, but just have them say words in English. Don't don't write heavy accents. I I think that's where he went the most wrong. Yep. Well, let's move away from the problematic material and move to fun stuff, Jay, and end on a high note. All right. I'm always down for some fun stuff. Lay it on me. All right. So the, the first thing that I, I wanted to call out in our fun stuff section was the Yiddish. And <laughs> that, that we, we get a translation of the confrontation that, we, that uh, Callahan experiences when he, his life is saved by some mysterious strangers in a in an abandoned warehouse or no it's an abandoned laundromat yeah right in the past and the only thing he remembers is somebody saying in yiddish guy kaknif in yam <laughs> and so eddie finally finds out that that means go shit in the ocean so 
Anyway, I thought that was fun to finally get the, the translation of that. And uh, I got to maybe add that to my repertoire. Just randomly <laughs> tell people to go shit in the ocean. It's it's not quite a what in the blue fuck is that, but it's it's up yeah. there. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> so there's a line that both you and I pointed out, Jay, as we were reading this. It's the column of truth has a hole in it. Mm-hmm. And when we were looking at that, it sort of rang a bell. I think they mentioned in the book that some Greek philosopher may have, have said it. If you do a Google search of it, what you turn up is a lot of Stephen King, unfortunately. So yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to get the... Uh, that's a problem with being a famous writer. Anything you put in, even if it's from someone else, you get called out first. So it, it takes a little bit of digging. Um, but King actually addresses this in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, this line, the column of truth has a hole in it. And he's actually talking about his story, The Night Flyer, which is uh, about a vampire. So connection, mm-hmm. connection to Salem's lot there. For sure. And he says, as he's writing about The Night Flyer, that at the end of the story, um, there's a line by a George Seferis, a line that I used in Salem's lot. This is King speaking. The one about the column of truth having a hole in it. So this is a line that King's come to a few times. He's, it, was, it was in uh, an epigraph, I believe, in Salem's lot. It's mentioned again in the Night Flyer, and then it's mentioned here. So the column of truth has a hole in it. And you and I were trying to figure out what exactly does that mean. Um, yeah, is it like a like a vertical column that is hollow, like the hole goes its full length, or is it like a column, a vertical column with like a horizontal hole that pierces the column? Like which is more meaningful in terms of there's something incomplete about what truth is right yep and my first vision of this expression translated to that horizontal hole that pierces the column that weakens its structural uh ability to to bear weight right but i kind of then gravitated more towards the hollow column i think i like that more that from the outside it looks solid every angle you you might look at it seems like it's fully there, fully substantial. But if you were to somehow peer inside of it, you would see it's not solid all the way through. There is a, there is something missing from truth. It might look solid, but there's always something missing. And I think that, like most uh, philosophy, you could go down some pretty deep <laughs> rabbit holes on this one. But I like this idea, and I, I suspect King really does like this, which is why he keeps coming back to it. Yeah, and it's brought up in connection with the fact that there are these walk-ins who keep showing up around town mm-hmm. and where they are. And some man has done a lot of research on it, but can't no believe it and nobody it. wants to hear it. Exactly. Um, he, 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 he seems like a Kolchak, the Night Stalker for, for our times, and he's not able to get that information across, which I think the Night Flyers is also about as well. So. Yeah, he was talking about how, like, no matter how much evidence you might have to prove what you're saying, if it's outlandish, it's not, people will still insist it's not real, it's not true, it's not the truth. And that's the whole. I mean, in, in this instance, that's what King's talking about. That's the whole. Yep. Anyhow, it's a line from George Seferis, who is a Greek poet, and he actually won a Nobel Prize for his writing. So, so he's probably pretty good. Yeah. And pointing out once again that uh Stephen King's knowledge is 
far-reaching is when it comes to literature. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. What else you got? Another fun thing was a callback to Aston <laughs> when, uh, you know, uh, Eddie's naming uh, several different prescription drugs and a few other things, and Roland has no reaction. But then when, when Eddie says, Aston, <laughs> Roland says with unmistakable affection, truly a wonderful drug. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just such a great callback to book two. Like getting some Aston turned Roland's life around. It didn't save him the way the antibiotics did, but it it got him to the antibiotics. So it's uh, it's pretty amazing stuff for him. And it is aspirin's a pretty amazing drug. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it does so many things to, for so many people every day. So also in this section, there is a metaphor that King uses that more than anything else I've encountered so far in the Dark Tower books really dates this book. And that's a fax machine metaphor when you when they're talking about how a fax machine oh. writes lines one at a time. And and I just thought like, you know, fax machines have been around for a while and they're still in use today. But really, like the late 90s, early 2000s was a time when really the fax machine was at its height when people were using it all the time. And really the only time that you would use a metaphor such as that to talk about how things were created, because older than that, people it, not enough people would understand it. And later than that, it wouldn't make sense. So I really felt like that fax machine was the one thing that's really going to date these books because people are going to come to it 50 years from now and be like, what on earth is he talking about? Yeah, that what awful a poor thermal metaphor. paper <laughs> that after you had it for like a year, then everything just faded to gray and you couldn't read anything anymore. So another uh, item I wanted to mention is that um, Roland sees a, a pack of camels and he refers to the animal he sees on the package as a dromedary, just like the old expression in Wind Through the Keyhole, as dependable as a dromedary. <laughs> so King wrote this line many years before he wrote Wind Through the Keyhole. So if we had read those in publication order, maybe they wouldn't have stood out as much for us, but now I get to have fun with that twice. So, yay. And of course, Roland's such a badass, he doesn't understand the filter and is like, what on earth is this doing to this? <laughs> John Cullum, a good man, shows him how to rip that filter right off and get right down to the good stuff. Yep. And uh, so there was a really great line in this section of the book, a place where shadows are canceled and time holds its breath. Just really like that line. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and then the, uh, the last item I wanted to mention in our fun stuff section is that King managed to make a section of this book, stanza 10, in fact, 19 chapters long. Don't belabor the obvious there, Jay. <laughs> but I keep expecting like every one of these things to be 19 chapters long. But they're not. They're just whatever. But this one happened to be 19. So it's like, hmm, all right. I wonder if that was intentional. Probably not, but I'll celebrate it nonetheless. So a longtime listener, Sarah Elms, mentioned to us that Stephen King's had a short story that was released for free on his website recently. It's a short story called Lori. And it doesn't seem to me, Jay, you and I both read this, to be anywhere connected with the Dark Tower. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I was looking for a connection because Sarah called it out to us, but um, maybe I missed something. I enjoyed the story. I thought it was a wonderful, sweet, short story that, that King put out there for us. 
but I didn't see the Dark Tower connection. I didn't either, but it was like you said, I thought it was an interesting story. Um, if you're a follower of Stephen King's Twitter account, you know that he has a thing for dogs. Mm-hmm. Molly, his... Uh, AKA the thing of evil. The thing of evil, exactly. So uh, the dog in this book, not quite so much, but uh, a good story. Like I said, Free King is Good King, mm-hmm. so check it out on his website. Um, his latest book also came out in the past couple of weeks, but I am not going to get to it for a while. I don't think I still have some Dark Tower books ahead and other books stacking up on my nightstand. So if anyone is out there who has read The Outsider, if there's a uh, Dark Tower connection, let us know and we'll get on that sooner rather than later. Yeah. At this point, I almost expect everything he writes to have a Dark Tower connection, even if it's just like two words happen to a butt with the letters R and F or something, but uh, like he just can't help himself. It's interesting because I, I think filmmakers are starting to get that way too. If you saw Gerald's game in the Netflix movie that came out, yeah. um, there was a all things serve the beam line in there sort of unexpectedly yeah, in the middle of the conversation. I was like, whoa, I had to rewind it to make sure I heard it right. Which I think is great. And when I think back to like, Dolores Claiborne and a couple of other stories that were very much connected both to specific books in, in King's library as well as The Dark Tower. Like when every time any of those movies were made or any of those movies were adapted from their source material, I think the the directors and scriptwriters went out of their way to remove those references. Mm. They wanted their movie to stand on its own. So like the Hearts in Atlantis movie, as great as it was with Anthony Hopkins and Anton Yelchin, they could have put lots of little things in there about the Dark Tower, but they didn't. Yeah, Because I understood where the story was coming from and I understood its significance to the Dark Tower story, I sort of translated as I watched, but I think of that as a missed opportunity. Well, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has changed everything for everyone, so I'm sure more uh, writers or more directors will input those references in the future, I have a feeling. Yeah. Indeed. We also got a few tweets of people providing their input on their order of the books. Um, I think people respect our opinion and yet heartily disagree with them, which is totally <laughs> which yes. is totally fine, and we love to hear that. Um, you know, I have a feeling that my rankings are going to change as we as we go on as I said last time and i think uh that's all good fun i think the fact that we're enjoying the books is really the most important thing but uh it's good to hear you your rating so feel free to continue those yep all right well that's going to do it for this episode of two guys to the dark tower came thanks jay thank you links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes you can email us at two guys at gmail.com and our twitter handle is at two guys dark tower you can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 6 of the Dark Tower, Song of Susanna, stands as 11 through 13. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Following the ambush, Rolly and Eddie have some downtime with John Cullum, where they discuss pain drugs, baseball, the location of Calvin Tower, 
and an author named Stephen King. Never heard of him. <laughs> you also said Roland as Rolly. Rolly? 